Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. It's the same thing I get to say in Dubai to Redeemer Church of Dubai. It is a delight to be with you. The church in Dubai sends greetings to you, and we're just we're just glad to be here. I am glad to be here with my whole family today. So my sons were uh, were there in the first service, and my daughters are, are with us now. It was no small task getting to you and getting to the U.S. in particular. Uh, it took four flights, over 20 hours of flying, and then we were delayed for 26 hours. We actually had to go through immigration into Canada. That was not a plan of our trip. We also lost all six of our suitcases for a while. Thankfully, after about a week, we got the last two, and we're here with you all now, and we're grateful for the cold weather here in Houston. Now, we thought we were going to get cooler weather, but it's actually, it's hot, and it even seems like it's hotter than normal, and it's humid, and when people think that Dubai has a dry heat, no, we don't. We have the Houston heat. We have a, a humid uh, heat, and so I guess we feel like home in that way, but um, we're glad to be here, and to our new friends, to those of you who haven't met before, we were with you three years ago. Uh, it was our last time in the U.S., but you'll see here, a sweet picture of us landing in Dubai, August 23rd, 2008. So August 23rd is a very special day for us uh, as a family. It's our sand anniversary. So our anniversary of landing on the sand of the Arabian Peninsula. We've been there almost 14 years. There you see our, uh, at the time, baby daughter Eliza and uh, Gloria was pregnant with our second daughter, uh, Nora. Well, Dubai, where we live, is the largest city in the United Arab Emirates, and uh, also known as the UAE. It's one of seven countries on the Arabian Peninsula. So you'll see Saudi Arabia there on the map uh, is most of the Arabian Peninsula, and then there's a number of countries on the side. We border the country of Oman, uh, as well as Saudi Arabia, and then right across the Persian Gulf, you'll see the country of uh, Iran. If you zoom in a bit more on the UAE, uh, you'll see that we're made up of seven states, actually called Emirates. Abu Dhabi is the biggest. It's the light blue, so it's the biggest land mass. It's the capital uh, city of our country. And then Dubai is just right to the north uh, east of Abu Dhabi. It is the uh, most populated city. It is the tourism and the business hub of the UAE. And then there's five others. So we have seven Emirates, really seven kingdoms coming together as the United Arab uh, Emirates. A few things about our city. You could take a seven-hour plane flight uh, to two-thirds of the world's population. Uh, Dubai also has the world's tallest building. Maybe you've seen pictures or you've seen fireworks on TV shot off of the uh, Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building. It's actually over 200 stories tall. And an interesting fact is the first uh, couple dozen floors are a hotel, then there are apartments, and then the top, really 30 or 40% are offices. And the reason you can't have hotels or apartments that high is because maybe you know that skyscrapers actually sway a little bit and actually move a little bit. And if you lay down horizontally, once you get past a certain floor, you'll get vertigo. And so you can't actually sleep at the top of it. It does have the highest observation deck. And you may have seen Mission Impossible 4, where the or the, the Tom Cruise, he actually kind of repels off of uh, the Burj Khalifa. Well, Dubai is also a melting pot. Many of the world's least reached people groups uh, are found in uh, Dubai. Our church has over 60 different nationalities, people from places like India and Pakistan and Nigeria, Lebanon, Egypt, really the whole world. 90% of our church, Easterners and Africans, about 10% would be uh, Westerners. Uh, one other distinctive of our city is, though it's a melting pot and people are gathering from the whole world, 
world there to Dubai. It's very transient. People are in and out. People come maybe for a couple of years and they leave. I've heard it said about an international church like ours that pastoring is kind of like trying to hug a parade. Right, A parade is always moving and you can't stop it, you can't hug it, but it feels like that in Dubai because you have people from a short uh, period of time and then they go. But what we see this, not as a problem, but we see this as potential, not as a problem, but as a uh, potential for ministry. People are with us for a while and then we have the privilege of sending them back oftentimes to their home country or to another country with a new vision of the local church, with a new vision for ministry, kind of hearing the gospel, receiving the gospel, and then taking the gospel to the world. So God is indeed building his church in the Middle East, but it's not been easy for us. There's been many, many challenges, uh, one of which I'd love for you to pray for, and that's my health. I have a nerve disorder in both of my arms. I've struggled with it for 17 uh, years. I'm in pain 100% of the time and have very little physical strength in my arms. And so uh, while I'd love to meet you afterwards, I won't be able to shake your hand. It's not because I'm a germaphobe or don't like you. Um, Actually, I am kind of a germaphobe, which this makes it a little convenient. Um, (laughs) But I would love to meet you. And I would ask that you would just pray that the Lord would heal my arms, give me strength. If you see my face, family carrying everything or my little boys opening up doors for me. It's not because I'm a prima donna pastor. Uh, Well, at least I hope I'm not. Um, But it's just that I physically can't do it. Uh, One story on a trip to the U.S. uh, for a pastor's conference a few years ago, I was eating lunch at a table full of lead pastors, but sitting next to me was one of our elders named Mac. Now, Mac knows of my disability. These other pastors didn't. And so when the steak came to the lunch table, Mac just leaned over and without saying a word, he cut the steak for me. Um, And sensing the awkwardness of people just kind of staring and wondering what was going on, he looked up and and said to the pastors, isn't this the way your elders serve you? (laughs) I'm glad that we can laugh even in the midst of pain and suffering. God has been so good to us and God has provided such sweet memories and God has used weakness. Really, that's the story of the Bible. It's not the sermon for today, but it's the story of the Bible. The weakness is the way, so God gets all the glory. And you can look and see that theme all throughout the scriptures. Well, he's done amazing things. We've seen Lee Street's people come to faith in Christ. And I'll share one story about that at the end. Uh, God has planted churches all around uh, our region in places like Lebanon. Uh, The Lord has given us places to meet in Dubai. So in a country in the Arabian Peninsula, we've always had a place uh, to meet. We've had some trials in finding them, but you'll see a picture here of our launch day. August 23rd um, was when we arrived. A year and a half later, February 12th, 2010, uh, we launched at a hotel in the center of the city. Uh, We've moved around a lot since then. In God's kindness, we are now meeting in a wonderful facility. Uh, the, The UAE on December the 10th, posted some news for us, which all of us took notice. And that news was that in 20 days, they were changing the weekend. Now, I don't know how how you would respond if the president of the United States gave you 20 days notice and said, you're changing the weekend from Saturday, Sunday to Sunday and Monday. Well, that's essentially what happened. And yet God knew our weekend moved from Friday, Saturday to Saturday and Sunday. So now we worshiped in the past on Fridays. Now we worship on Sundays. 
much like you. And so when you wake up in the morning, we're probably just kind of finishing our day. We're nine hours later than you. But this shift of weekend opened up the possibility for us to find a new venue. We can't have a church building uh, there, but we have a permit to meet publicly in a hotel. And so right in the center of the city, there's this beautiful building. If you type uh, it into Google later on today, the world's most beautiful building, Dubai, you'll see this wonderful building, this, this oval-shaped building with a hole in the middle with beautiful Arabic script and these iconic Emirates towers behind it. Well, we, we, we don't meet in that building. But if you look across the street from that building, that's where our church meets, right in the center of the city. Plenty of parking. The train goes by. We have uh, a bus that stops uh, at, the, uh, at the hotel as well. And it's just been a wonderful place. So please pray as we have this witness right on the busiest highway, right in the center of the city. Uh, we've also started a seminary over the past few years, the Gulf Theological Seminary. Uh, it has 130 three students from 27 countries. I teach the church planting class, which had men who aspire to plant churches in countries like Angola, Lebanon, India, Philippines, and Nigeria. You'll, you'll see three of my students there, and three of our students from Redeemer graduated uh, just a couple months ago. So you'll see a brother there from the Philippines, from Nigeria, and then from India. The Lord has, has done a great work through the school, and, uh, and the Lord is raising up leaders all to the glory of God. And so friends, we're thankful for your partnership. Uh, over the years. When we think of what God has done, it's not my ministry, it's not our ministry in Dubai, but it's our collective ministry because all of us are called to missions in some way. Not all of us are called to go. Many of us and most of us are called to stay, but all of us are called to pray. All of us are called to participate in some way in the mission of God, not just here in the Houston area, but throughout the nations, throughout the world. And so this is our collective ministry. We couldn't do it without the financial support that comes from Redeemer Church here. We couldn't do it without your prayers and without your encouragement. And so we are just so thankful uh, for this church and thankful for your partnership, thankful for Pastor Kevin, all the Redeemer uh, staff and elders and uh, deacons members. We're grateful for your partnership. Um, some of you might not know this, but uh, this part of, of Houston has a, a special place in my heart. I went to Tice Elementary School in Spring, Texas, so not far from here. It was some of my formative sports years. And so Hakeem the Dream Olajuwon, still my favorite basketball player of all time. I loved uh, Warren Moon and the Houston Oilers. I was so sad when they moved to Tennessee. I have memories of actually starting the wave. It went around seven times in the Astrodome during an Astros game. I'm sure that's not the world record, but I think I was only about eight years old when I did it. I love Houston. I love the great diversity of Houston. If you look at statistics, you see that Dubai and Houston are two of the most diverse cities in the world. Not only that, but our churches share the same name. We share the same uh, type of ministry and we have the privilege of partnering together. So church, we love you and are really thankful uh, for you. Thanks for your prayers, encouragement, support. Um, we thank you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we look at his word now. Father, we thank you for another day when your mercies are new. We thank you for your love and care for us. Oh, Father, would you speak to us now through your word? Would you change us and would you transform us? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Weddings. Weddings are a big deal regardless of the culture that you're from. 
You see here in the bookstore magazines dedicated to weddings, movies about weddings. The Wedding Planner, Father of the Bride, Princess Bride, The Runaway Bride. There's even a show called Bridezilla. I don't necessarily recommend it. I don't know it. But while all cultures have weddings and talk about weddings, it's interesting to see how different weddings in various cultures differ from one another how unique they are. For the most part, weddings in our host culture separates the men and separates the women for the majority of the proceedings. Now, I've had the privilege of officiating a traditional Indian wedding in southern India, and I was told that almost a 1,000 people would attend this wedding. And so, wow, I got myself prepared, and I was ready for everyone. But I came into a room that seemed a bit small for a 1,000 people, and as the ceremony was about to start, there were hardly 80 or 90 people there. And so I asked, where, where are all the people, wondering where everybody was? And I learned in their culture that it was the reception which was the main event. Most people skipped the wedding in the pastor's words and instead attended for the food and the party. Now, that wouldn't fly here in the U.S., would it? For, the, for us, the reception is the reward for sitting through the wedding. <laughs> right? No wedding, no food. Those are the rules. Those are the rules of our culture. I'm most proud of the food at our wedding reception 20 years ago. We're still the only people I know who had Chick-fil-A cater their wedding reception. Thousands of Chick-fil-A nuggets for our dear friends. We still love Chick-fil-A and we're actually having a bit of culture shock being back here because you, I'm sure, know this, but it's just blown our minds and you could actually go into stores here and buy these big bottles of Chick-fil-A sauce. God bless America. (laughs) It's incredible. Well, it has been 20 years now since our wedding day. And just to be clear, so I don't get in trouble with my wife, Gloria, while the reception was amazing, the wedding was indeed the main event. Now, our church building was, was very long, okay? It was narrow and it was very, very long. And uh, it was carpeted green. And so we called that long walk for the bride, the green mile. And when the doors opened in the back, Gloria and her father looked like little dots on the horizon. That's how far away they were. But uh, as I waited, it felt like I waited uh, for an eternity, but they finally made it to me. Gloria and I were married, and the rest is history. Well, today in our passage, we have another wedding. We have another wedding, and a very unique wedding at that. We have a wedding with some interesting cultural dynamics. We just read the scripture a few minutes ago, chapter 22 of the book of Matthew. If you have your Bible with you, turn there. We're going to look at it. I'm going to be uh, sharing through the ESV version, but you can, you can look at any version you would like, either in your Bible or on a device. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 14, Matthew chapter 22, 1 through 14. And we'll see two major themes in this wedding. And that'll be our outline today. So if you'd like to take notes or just want to have that in your mind as as two hooks to kind of hang the, the text here. Number one, we see the king's invitation. The king's invitation. And number two, the people's response. So the king makes an invitation and the people respond. So first, let's take number one, the king's invitation. Let's look at verses one and two. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. 
Every parable has a cast of characters. It's not too difficult to ascertain here who they are. The king is God the Father, and the son is God the Son, Jesus. And Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven to a feast given by a king in honor of his son. Now, parables aren't perfect analogies, but they are a comparison and normally make one main point. The king here is extraordinarily generous. In verse three, his servants, they're sent out to summons those invited to the feast. You'd have to do this. There were no iPhones. There were no Google calendars in these days. In the ancient Near East, somehow the king would get out the invitations. People would RSVP somehow. And then the servants notified the invitees when the feast was ready. And so they'd go out heralding this good news. The feast is at hand. Come to the king's palace. Now notice in our text what happens. Well, the people don't come. This would have absolutely shocked the original hearers as they heard this parable. When a king invites you to his palace, what do you do? Well, here's a little hint for you. You go. You, you, you go, it's your obligation. And, if, and, and worse, if you've RSVP'd in the past, like they may have done, this would have been horribly shaming for the king. Now, I've actually met some of the sheikhs, or you could call them kings in our country. Our, our country's made up of those seven emirates, seven sheikhdoms, or seven kingdoms, and I've had the privilege of meeting three and sitting with two of them for a lengthy conversation. Now, these were not appointments that I set according to my own calendar. See, when a king invites you, you come. In one case, my first time, me and a couple of other pastors visited the king's palace and in the front yard, there were several big, beautiful blue peacocks. And when you entered in, everything was layered in gold. It was the first time I'd ever shaken hands with someone and said, your royal highness, and wasn't joking around with a friend. I mean, this was royalty. This was a king. And this king generously gave land up north for a church building to be built. And since I've been there, this is the first evangelical church building that's been able to be built. And so we, praise God, we were thankful. The church later was started, but that meeting didn't happen when we were available. The meeting happened when the king wanted it. We just had to be ready to show up at a moment's notice. On another occasion with another king, we were summoned by that king just the night before. Well, what did we do? We didn't check our Google calendars. We just canceled whatever we had that day and we went. Why? Well, because he's the king. He's the king and he summoned us and so we go. Well, in our passage, the king is ignored. The king of the land summons the wedding guests and he's ignored. But the king is incredibly gracious. Do you see that? Rather than being offended and turning away, in verse four, he tells the servants, why don't you go out? Why don't you tell them how amazing this feast is? Why don't you give them some some details of the cuisine that I prepared my dinner? My oxen and my fattened calves, they've been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Now, this was not any ordinary feast. This was not just a wedding. This was the greatest wedding. A feast like no other. But verse five, still they paid no attention. One went off to his farm, another to his business. They couldn't be interrupted. Notice those those phrases are his, 
his farm, his business. Not even the king could interrupt their lives. But the shocking response didn't end there. Verse six, the rest actually seized the servants. They treated them shamefully, destroyed them, killed them. Now that's an insane response to a king inviting you to his son's wedding feast. I mean, let's just step back for a second and just think about this scene. Just try to play it in your mind. These servants have a message of good news. They have a message of invitation. The king wants you to come to his son's wedding. It'll be the best food. It'll be the best celebration. You'll be in the presence of the king. You'll be in the presence of his son. All you've got to do is to accept the invitation and to walk in. That's it. But what do they do instead? Well, they beat up the messengers. They kill the messengers simply for inviting them. Isn't this crazy? It makes no sense. Verse seven, the king is angry. You bet he was angry. His servants were killed. He sends troops in. He destroys them and burns the city. The righteous anger of the king burned, rightfully so. Perfect justice executed. But we still have a problem, don't we? We have a wedding feast that's empty. There's a son getting married. Here's the reception. Here's the feast. And there are no people. So verse eight and nine, the king sends out servants one more time, new instructions. Tell, um, uh, tell others, go out to other people. The wedding feast is ready, but those who were first invited were unworthy. And so go to some new people. And there he says in verse nine, go to the main roads, go to the roads and invite anyone and everyone, good or bad, as many as you can find. Now, the original guests weren't worthy. Now, who do they represent in the, in the parable in this cast of characters? Well, they represent the Jews and the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, these that felt like they could get to heaven on their own. And the king says, all right. They don't seem to think that they need the king. Why don't you go out and invite some others? Go to the main roads and invite everyone. Verse 10, that's what they did. These people had no relationship to the king. They'd never been in the palace before. A surprising invite, a last minute invite, no reason to be a guest. But what was their response? Well, they came. And the servants gathered anybody and everybody, last minute invites, they didn't check passports at the door, no background checks, no proof of bank account balance, no list of religious duties, nothing that they had done that week. Everyone on the streets were given an invitation to the king's palace and that wedding hall was full. Every seat taken, but something's wrong. Verses 11 and 12. One person doesn't seem to fit in. Everybody's there wearing their wedding garment, but when the king came in, he looked out at the guests and he saw that there was one man who was not wearing the wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here? How did you make it into the feast without the wedding garment? And he was speechless. The text says there in verse 12, everyone else has this wedding garment on except this one man. Now, oftentimes in the ancient Near East, what would happen when you were invited to a feast like this, you're invited to a wedding like this, the king would be handing out, he would have the servants handing out wedding garments that you would wear for the feast. 
That's normally what happened. That's probably what happened here. At the very least, all were wearing the same white garment or clean garments. We don't know exactly, but what we do know is that this one man wasn't wearing the wedding garment, that he was not dressed for the occasion. Now, have you ever found yourself in an awkward dressing situation where maybe you've broken the dress code? You arrive at a fancy event. Everybody is wearing suits or tuxedos or dresses and you realize that you're in jeans and an untucked Houston Texans football jersey. Total embarrassment. You tuck your jersey in. You think that might help. You kind of sit behind the food and try to hide there. Well, my most embarrassing dress code moment happened when one of my professors uh, from the U.S. traveled to Dubai. And so I thought, I got to treat him right. And so I took him to my favorite Chinese restaurant in the world, thinking this will be a good place for my professor. But for some odd reason that day, I wore these, these cargo shorts and this t-shirt to take my professor out. And that was a problem because when we walked up to the restaurant, uh, they said, oh, sir, we have a problem. We have a dress code here. Uh, In order to enter into the restaurant and to enjoy the food, you have to wear pants. You can imagine how, how nervous I was there and how embarrassed I was next to my seminary professor. This was a man who put fear into mortal men like me. He has two doctorates and was very distinguished. And here I am being turned away from my favorite restaurant. But they said, oh, no, no problem. It's no problem. Uh, let me go to the back and let me get you a pair of pants that the waiters wear. You can go put those on in the restroom around the corner. I'm even more embarrassed. I went to the restroom, changed my pants. You can imagine that walk out of that restroom to that table with my professor. I've now labeled that in my life as the walk of shame. But see, I had the wrong wardrobe on. I needed to conform to their standards. And the man in our passage, he had the wrong wardrobe on. No wedding garment. Far worse than wearing that football jersey or shorts to a fancy restaurant. Somehow he had snuck through the bouncers at the door and invited guests acting like a wedding crasher. It seems he thought his own garments were good enough for the king. But he was wrong. The king commands his servants, verse 13 and 14, bind him bind his foot, bind his hand, cast him into the outer darkness, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now on the face of it, this seems like a really harsh penalty for leaving your tie at home. He doesn't get handed a garment like I did at the Long Yin Chinese restaurant. But back in verse 12, he couldn't answer the king for his wardrobe choices. Did you notice that? He was speechless. He had nothing to say to the king. And so the king has him bound and cast into darkness. It's a place of weeping, gnashing of teeth. This is eternal judgment. This is eternal separation from God. Now that sounds like a severe punishment for putting the wrong shirt on this morning. But friends, that's not what this text is ultimately about. The application isn't whether you wore the right thing to this church service this morning. And so when I close in prayer in a little bit, if you feel that way, no need to walk out the back door. No, this text is not about your garments. This text is about something else. It's about God's work and it's about our response to God's work. And that's the second point we see in our passage is the people's response. So we've seen the king's invitation. It goes out far and wide. And now we see number two, the people's response. And the people do respond. 
We, we see these people come from far and wide. They come, but this one man had mocked the host's provision of wedding clothes. This was an insult. This was not just complacency. This is even rebellion. His best, the best he could do on his own was not enough for God. And that man is thrown out of the feast. This reminds us of the book of Isaiah. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. The point, we're not fit for the feast on our own. But in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, the prophet Isaiah has a solution. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God for he, now listen to this, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. A bridegroom adorns his head like a priest. A redeemer church, this parable is clear. Most of the time they are. There's a clear point to the parable and the parable here is clear. God has provided a feast. He's provided this feast, which is a symbol of his kingdom. It's a feast for his son. And this invitation, it goes far. And this invitation, it goes wide. It goes to everyone But if you reject the invitation, you miss the feast. And if you think you can get in by your own works, you'll be thrown out. Verse 14 tells us many are invited, but few will come. There's a call and there's a response. It's been said that the word chosen here was originally a synonym for Israel, but with their rejection also came an invitation to the Gentiles, to the whole world. Though Jesus is speaking here of the Jews and the religious leaders, these who boasted of their their tithes, those who stood on those street corners and prayed extra loud prayers, not to pray to God, but to be seen by fellow man. The point is, those things don't save. The point is, there's nothing you can do that can save you. Not your baptism, not your, quote, good works, not any religious ceremony. Being nice doesn't get you into heaven. Praying prayers doesn't get you into heaven. You're no better than a tax collector before God. You're only invited and can get into the feast if you say, nothing in my hands I bring. Now, these wedding clothes here in the parable represent the righteousness of Christ. And our passage shows us that there are at least four ways we can respond to the king's summons, to the invitation. First is apathy. We can be apathetic. You could be sitting here today thinking about what you're going to do the rest of the day and not really even caring about Christ and just going through the motions. You can respond in apathy. Maybe it's some of the people we've shared our faith with. There just doesn't seem to be any urgency in their lives. They're just going about their farm and their business as we saw here in our passage. A second response could be hostility. Sounds like an extreme response. Here there's persecution. The messengers go out with the good news and they get beaten or killed. A third response is self-righteousness. This one's quite common. It's the man in his own clothes. It's the one who thinks he can get into heaven by his own good works. It's the one who does trust in their religious experiences or their ceremonies or their good works. But there is a fourth way. Besides apathy, hostility, and self-righteousness, there is a fourth way. These are the people who actually are invited and actually come into the wedding banquet. They represent those who come to Jesus on the basis of Christ's righteousness, and that's it. On the basis of Christ's blood, and that's it. 
It's the people who just, just show up. It's the people who just believe. That's the fourth way. And all are welcome to this feast. This is shocking to us. This is shocking to the original hearers and it's shocking to us. The same father who hosts the feast in honor of his son is the same father who sent his son into the world. Jesus, God in the flesh, fully man and fully God would come. He lived a perfect life. Yes, he was tempted, but he did not sin. He lived perfectly and then he set his face towards Jerusalem and he marched willingly to the cross. And it was there on the cross that he took upon himself the sins of his people. Because all of us have sinned. The Bible is so clear in the book of Romans that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can take our own robes of righteousness and make it into the kingdom. But see, Jesus on the cross took that penalty upon himself for his people. And not just that, but he was buried in a tomb. And not just that, but on the third day, that same God, man, rose from the dead, conquering death, and is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, even interceding for his people. That's good news. That's the gospel. The gospel is the greatest news. And this invitation of the gospel, this invitation to the kingdom, this invitation to the feast, it goes out far and wide to everyone. All are invited. Doesn't matter what you did last night. Doesn't matter what you did last year. Doesn't matter your religious background. It doesn't matter where your parents are from. It doesn't matter if this is your first day ever inside a church building or if you've been attending all of your life and yet haven't personally made a choice to walk into the kingdom and to step into the feast. And so friend, I ask you this morning, whether you're six or 86, whether you're growing up in a Christian home or not, whether you were in the youth Bible study at 9.15, whether you're a visitor, whether you've been attending here for months or even years, I ask you, have you come into the feast? Have you accepted that invitation from God to believe to repent of your sin and to believe, to believe that the only way in is Christ, that it's Christ alone who saves you. So friend, I just invite you, just like the text invites all of us, if you haven't yet done that, if you haven't turned to Christ in faith, I urge you to do it today, to not wait another day, to talk to any of your pastors here, to talk to any of your leaders here, to talk to the friend who brought you here today, to talk to me afterwards. It's the most important decision you can make. Friends, if you come to the banqueting table, there's nothing you can do to earn it. You don't need to walk out those doors and earn it. You just have to accept it and believe, turning from your old way of life and trusting in the king to save you. So that's the first part of the people's response. We're called to believe, but it doesn't stop there. We're also called to share this invitation with others. Not just if you're a pastor, not just if you're preaching from a pulpit, but all of us as Christians are ministers of reconciliation. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, that we are Christ's ambassadors. We're the ones who are to do the inviting today. And so are you inviting your friends to follow Jesus? If you're a student in school, are you inviting your friends to follow Jesus in the workplace, in your neighborhood? Are you inviting people to join you here on Sunday to meet other believers and to hear the preached word and the sung word and the read word? Well, let me just tell you and close with one amazing story of invitation from our church. 
It has nothing to do with me, but it has a lot to do with God and a lot to do with a variety of his people. Let me share about our oldest elder, Jerry. Jerry's from the Philippines and Jerry's a wonderful man. I remember one time he was at our house with a few other couples and he was sharing about a friend that he was uh, talking to about the gospel and it sounded like an extraordinary um, opportunity. And so we were like, well, when did this happen? And Jerry said, oh, just a few hours ago. It happened today. And that's, that was all of Jerry's stories were stories of him sharing the gospel that he was, he was doing it on a regular basis. He was inviting people in to the banqueting table. And so one of the people that Jerry invited over the year was a man named Adam from Afghanistan. And that's not his, his real name, uh, but he's from Afghanistan and Jerry met him at the workplace and he started sharing the gospel with Adam and inviting Adam to come join us uh, to worship. And so Adam had been coming for about six months until the week when Pastor Morgan from Australia preached on the Good Shepherd from John chapter 12. And it was really impacting um, Adam's heart and he was really blessed by this passes on the good shepherd. Well, just a few days later, while he was sleeping, he had a dream. It was a white light, and there's a dream of Jesus who uh, called himself the good shepherd and invited Adam to believe in him. And so Adam's freaking out at this point. He hears this sermon about the good shepherd. He has a dream about the good shepherd, and he shows up the next Sunday, and he starts talking to us about what's happening. He's like, I can't believe this. I would love to follow Jesus but I'm too afraid. He was scared. He said, even if I follow Jesus here, my friends here, this is, isn't his home country, but my friends here could hurt me or even kill me. And I put my family in danger back home. So he was scared and so he, he didn't do it. Well, well, three weeks later, listen to, listen to this, a staff member, a Nigerian staff member in our church, you saw his picture earlier as one of our seminary graduates. He was preaching his very first sermon to us at Redeemer. And, and normally when it's their first sermon, I tell um, those preaching, you can preach whatever you want, whatever God has on your heart. Maybe it's a passage that you just love. Maybe it's something God's put on your heart to preach to the church. And so Samuel, months before this, months before Adam hears about Jesus, the good shepherd from John chapter 12, months before he has a dream of the good shepherd, Samuel made a choice to preach Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And so Samuel's preaching this sermon on the Lord is my shepherd. It was a great sermon. Afterwards, a number of Afghans and some others came up to talk to me and I had a bit of a semi-circle around me. Another man I'll call Henry had been attending for a while and, and Henry came up to tell me that he's now following Christ, that he's believed in the gospel. And wow, we're just, just amazed at God's work in Henry's life. And so I'm asking him a bunch of questions and I'm saying, Henry, Henry, just what do, you, what do you believe about Jesus? What has Jesus done in your life? What, what is the gospel? I'm doing kind of a mini little, little uh, membership chat there, baptism chat, and it turns out, yes, Henry believes and Henry's following Christ and Henry had a present posture of, of faith and we just celebrated, we clapped and then I just said, let's gather around, let's just pray for Henry, let's praise God for Henry's newfound faith. And so we, we pray and we thank God for Henry and that was super exciting. We were thrilled. Well, the, the, the thrill wasn't over yet because behind the semicircle, just right behind was Adam. And Adam kind of walked forward a bit and he, and he raised his hand really, really sweetly. And I said, Adam, uh, do, you have a, do you have a question? Do you have something you'd like to say? And I'll never forget Adam's words, but he raised his hand and he said, 
the Lord is my shepherd, he will protect me. And he said, I believe. I believe in Jesus to save me. And we were stunned and we're like, Adam, you really believe, but you were afraid before. He's like, the Lord is my shepherd. He will protect me. And I have the same kind of conversation that I had with Henry. And I'm asking him all kinds of questions about the gospel and about what God has done. I hear about another dream he's had. And God often uses dreams and visions in our part of the world as kind of a Kickstarter pointing people to the Bible. And, and God had done that to Adam and Adam had believed and Adam was thrilled. And so we kind of clapped and we kind of cheered and we kind of gathered around again. Let's pray. Praise God. Let's pray a prayer of thanksgiving for God saving Adam. And so we were just amazed a couple, a few months later, we baptized Adam. Um, Adam has suffered some consequences, has had to run for his life in his home country. And it's been challenging, but so far God has indeed protected him. Well, think about God's kindness there. A Filipino elder invited an Afghan into our community an Australian pastor preaches on Jesus as the good shepherd. And then Adam has a dream sent by God of the good shepherd calling him to himself. A Nigerian brother preaches Psalm 23 that had been planned months earlier. The Lord is my shepherd. And alongside that all along, he had been attending a Bible study led by an Iranian man who had been sharing the gospel with him. All among a church in the Middle East. I mean, praise God. Isn't that an incredible story? The Lord is saving people. The Lord is saving souls. Friends, we're all called to be ambassadors. It might look different, but that's our job. That's who we are. Whether it's at the workplace like Jerry, whether it's in the church service itself, looking out for someone new, whether it's in, in, in your neighborhood, whether it's at school, in the cafeteria, lunch table. I don't know where it is for you, but if you are a follower of Christ, if you've taken that first step in believing in Jesus and you've taken that step to walk into the banqueting hall, there's another step next that God calls all believers to do, and that's to share that good news far and wide. And so friends, are you keeping your eyes open? Are you keeping your ears open for opportunities to invite others to the wedding feast. The servants in the parable here are the evangelists. The feast is a symbol of eternal life. We're called both to believe the gospel and to share it with others. Well, as I close, maybe you're intimidated by this. Maybe you're young. Maybe you feel like you're young. Maybe you're a new believer, a new follower of Christ. Maybe you don't feel like you're as eloquent as others. Maybe you feel like it's the preacher's job or your parents' job to be the one who shares the gospel with others. Maybe you think someday I'll get there. Someday I'll be old enough. Someday I'll be wise enough to share the gospel. But friends, all of us are called to share the gospel I love the story of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous uh, preacher in London. It's told that one night Spurgeon was late to preach and so his grandfather was there. His grandfather got into the pulpit and started preaching in his place. Well, a little bit later, the young Spurgeon walked in and his grandfather stopped uh, the sermon and said, okay, everybody, why don't you take a look? Why don't you look in? There he is. The great Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was so famous, they printed his sermons in the city newspaper. You can't, I can't even imagine that happening today, but everybody would know who he was. And so the grandfather said, look, there he is, the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Have a look at him. He may be a greater preacher than I, but he can't preach a greater gospel. 
Well, friends, all of us are armed with the gospel. No matter how eloquent we are, no matter how much theology we know, no matter how old we are, no matter how long you've been coming to this church, brothers and sisters, God has brought you to this church to be on mission for him. Let this be the all-consuming passion of Redeemer Church. Would this church be a people who would give up everything to reach the world for Christ, whether you stay here and support or whether you go? We're all armed with that same gospel to invite others to that wedding feast where not only do we enjoy this feast and not only do we enjoy the family of God, but we will be face to face with our Savior. For all eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, we will be with our triune God face to face. Oh, what good news that is. Friends, let's take that to the world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Would Redeemer Church go far and wide to invite others to the feast? Would we not grow weary in sharing the good news of Jesus to a lost and dying world? Oh, bless this body of believers to make disciples of all nations here in Tomball, in Houston, in Texas, in the United States, and around the world. Would you embolden them in their schools, in their workplace, in their neighborhoods? And Father, if there's anyone here today who hasn't accepted that invitation, oh Father, would you save them today? Would they, would they walk in? Would they believe, turning from their sins and believing in you? Father, you know your people. You know those whom you've called, those whom you've chosen. Would today be the day of salvation? And would many come to faith in you? But Father, we love you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.